Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at the New America Foundation and professor at Georgetown University. Also with us is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. I just keep asking myself, is anybody home at the National Security Council in the White House these days? Or are they just done and preparing for vacation? I haven't heard anything out of them. Nothing seems to be happening. Everybody else in the world seems to be going about their business without being much bothered by us. Can we expect that 2016 is going to be a year of invisibility and inaction on the foreign policy front from the Obama administration? No, I don't think we can. While I agree with you that the NSC has gone silent, that might mean that Ben Rhodes is doing expeditionary diplomacy in a way wholly unsuitable to somebody not confirmed by the Congress into a foreign policy job. Uh, (laughs) My sense, though, is that the White House is unlikely to be satisfied with the Iran agreement and the Cuba opening as their swan songs. So I think they're going to, you know, they're going to they're going to want other things to do in this last year. They're going to want to strengthen the argument for the president's legacy. The second thing is I also think problems are not going to give them the luxury of it. And, of course, the one that's stomping and hissing is Syria, where John Kerry's diplomatic initiative appears to be wholly divorced from any strategy for how the region comes together or military undergirding that will give us the authority to be able to make any kind of agreement. So I think both the NSC is going to want to be activists on the president's behalf and also problems aren't going to give them the luxury of just running out the clock. Rosa, don't you think that Corey's being grotesquely unfair and attacking (laughs) um, John Kerry? I mean, the guy's just out there, but, you know, a secretary of state without administration doing stuff to back him up. Yeah, the poor guy. He's just out there. I mean, he is really out there. And and, and (laughs) obviously, I think this must be something that is becoming intensely frustrating for him. This is not the first time that he's been left out there to talk and talk and talk without any real backup in terms of a longer term plan or commitment of resources. So I feel sorry for poor old John Kerry. Yeah. Corey, you want to take it back? I mean, the poor Heck guy. No. The poor guy. He, the how, poor guy. How's no, he supposed no, excuse me. The poor guy. 250,000 dead Syrians, 9 million refugees. All right. That's we very, are doing very, very nothing for- useful <laughs> on this. John Kerry is the wrong person to feel sorry for. <laughs> Syrians are the right people to feel sorry. Oh, my God. What a neat rhetorical twist. Man. But clearly... <laughs> Clearly, yes, the Syrians are the ones to feel sorry for in this. But just within the narrow ambit of discussing U.S. foreign policy, John Kerry can't do it alone, can he? I agree. John Kerry can't do it alone. As the last three years of his frenetic foreign policy efforts make clear, and you're right that he's been really activist and trying to cover the weaknesses of the White House's policy. 
but I am not sure that negotiations absent a strategy and absent the other pieces of military and moral and economic authority on this, I'm not sure diplomacy is actually helping the situation, certainly not the situation in Syria. Well, good. Now we are like commentators, right? You know, sort of pundits in training or something like that. And let's use that prerogative and figure out who to blame for leaving John Kerry out there all alone (laughs) on this issue. Rosa, does the military have any blame for this? Are they the ones... Yes and no. I mean, so so let, let me start by saying this is my charitable blame no one, blame everyone before I start actually blaming some people. Um, oh, bit. Um, but I mean, to preamble. some extent, we're, what we're seeing is pretty common in the final year of presidential administrations, right? That nobody wants to take any risks. Nobody wants a disaster. I think the administration's instinct, which has been the instinct of many prior administrations in its final year, is to be cautious, to be passive, to really cross their fingers and hope nothing catastrophic happens, to not make any big new initiatives unless they're absolutely risk-free. Corey is right. World events could force them to do something, but they're not going to put a lot out there, frankly. And, and that's typical, I think, at this of this moment in time. I think that there's some responsibility on the part of the military, and the military has obviously been very reluctant to get sucked in to Syria much further But I don't think the responsibility is primarily the military's. The military's reluctance to get sucked in and its constant voicing of notes of, well, gee, that would be really expensive and hard and difficult, that is reflective of the fact that, as Corey said, unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be any long-term strategy in the military's reluctance is pretty understandable, you know, that you don't want to commit lots of money, troops, equipment, etc., when you really don't have any idea what you're doing, then that just becomes a recipe for lots of people getting killed, both on on our side and other sides, unnecessarily. Corey, why don't we flip Rose's approach and just go and attack some people in the military and then apologize for it afterwards? (laughs) And name names. (laughs) I agree with Rosa on this one. So I would make a distinction between the civilian leadership in the Pentagon and the military. Ash Carter, the Secretary of Defense, he's been in Brussels not only at a NATO meeting at which he was pushing allies forward, but also he organized a meeting of coalition contributors on Syria. He, too, is trying to push the administration forward on that. On the other hand, the military, they've seen this movie before, right, in both Iraq and Afghanistan where the president wasn't actually committed to winning in a military engagement. He didn't have a strategy that put non-military pieces into play to be able to capitalize on battles won to turn into a successful strategy. It looked in both cases like the end date was the strategy, and that makes the military extremely anxious about putting young men and women in harm's way if they don't feel like there's a strategy that's going to make it worthwhile. Okay. And, and let's be fair to the administration, which has what? no coherent strategy I, for Syria. I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> Just this for always the first time. We've been doing this now for a, a long time. It's a thought experiment. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. They don't have a strategy for Syria, but it's not particularly clear that anybody else does either. I mean, the hawks on the hill who are calling for you know more military force still haven't answered all the essential questions that sort of are implied by everything Corey just said, such as, wait, 
against whom to what end and what happens after that and what happens after that and what happens after that. Nobody has good answers for those questions. Vladimir Putin has good answers for those questions because, you know, his own strategic goals are pretty clear and, and he's doing a pretty good job of accomplishing them. But it's not as though the administration lacks a strategy, but uh, there are a whole bunch of great alternatives out there. Okay, that was a pretty lame defense. And here's the reason why it was lame. <laughs> I was trying. No, no, I appreciate that. And and I'm sure, you know, the people in the White House who listen to this podcast slavishly... They're not going to appreciate that. They, 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 <laughs> they, they may not, but... but I'm it, hoping... I'm still waiting for the thank you note. From really? all the other times I've, I've offered faint praise. <laughs> even a faint thank you note, but no, not even a faint thank you note has come my way. Oh, well, I'm not surprised. Ungrateful bastards. But listen, here's the, pro- the problem with your analysis. Nobody else actually has in their job description the responsibility to come up with and implement plans to advance our national interests in the way that the commander-in-chief does. And so to the extent to which he doesn't have a good plan, he can't say, well, yeah, I'm so demanding. It's just that sort of cursory read of the Constitution that suggests that— Literal-minded. Yeah, well, I'm backwards. (laughs) But that that he does have a responsibility to come up with something. And it seems to me, you know, I mean, you you can pick on the military all you want. It seems to me they always take their cues from the White House. And the White House has said— you're not going to go very far. We're not going to do very much. We're not going to commit very much. We're not going to take big risks. We'd like it to look like we're doing a lot, but we don't want you to actually be doing a lot. I mean, am I right. being unfair? No, but okay, but let me offer another extremely half-hearted, quasi-semi-defense, which is maybe there's nothing to be done, you know, or maybe the costs of doing anything useful are just too high for the United States. And and remember, Corey, Corey is right to remind us that the ultimate victims here are the, you know, 250,000 dead Syrians, not to mention injured Syrians, not to mention displaced Syrians, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it runs into the millions of people who are suffering. And it's awful. It's terrible. It, it feels sort of sickening that we can't and aren't doing anything useful to help those people. But that is not the only brutal, bloody war going on in the world right now. Many of them don't even, you know, rarely make the news at all, much less the front pages. And nobody is beating up the administration about saying, well, you know, why haven't you solved all problems in Nigeria? Why haven't you solved all problems in South Sudan? Maybe they are coming to the conclusion, which, you know, and maybe they're right to, to say, as President Obama has said at other times, you know, the world is full of terrible stuff. We can do something about some of it. And there's other stuff that we can't do anything about. And this is one of those ones that is terrible, awful, tragic, and we probably can't do anything to make it better. And if you put a lot of political pressure on me, okay, I'll pretend. But the fact is, you know, there's there's really not much that can be done here. And that's true of this, and it's true of lots of other situations. And as President of the United States, my, my obligation is to protect U.S. national interests. Uh, and there's something about the upholding constitution I think might have been in there too. Um, believe that aside for a moment. Um, and I am doing that by harness, by, 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 by protecting our blood and treasure for our priorities. And frankly, when there's nothing we can do, you know, Hippocratic Oath says to doctors, first do no harm. There is nothing we can do beyond what we're doing that won't do more harm than good. So I'm going to do nothing and pretend I'm doing something. First well, of all, I the hip- read you a quick quote. Some nations may be able to turn a blind eye to atrocities in other countries. The United States of America is different. That's a direct quote from Barack Obama. And so it would be one thing if the White House was actually trying to make the case Rosa is, 
which is that the world's a terrible place, bad stuff's going on all over the place. We need to keep our head down and and fix what needs fixing at home. Uh, that that's a perfectly defensible approach for the United States government, but that's not what. Barack Obama is saying. He's saying, we're the world's unique, important power. You know, uh, everybody calls us. Some nations don't pay attention, but by God, we do. And that's why we're, we need to hold them to their own standard. If they want you know, credit for that kind we, of stuff, then they get the criticism for the fact that they actually are turning a blind eye to atrocities all over the there, world. There, there's an irony here. David and I uh, were chatting before this recording began, and I mentioned to David that I'm, I'm heading to Berlin soon for a, a conference on hypocrisy in international <laughs> relations. <laughs> and we had a brief discussion of the pros and cons of hypocrisy in various different situations. Um, I think, you're, Corey, of course you're right. President Obama is not coming out and saying, sorry, guys, no, you know, nothing we can do here. Uh, sad, but that's the way it is. He's, he's, he's pretending he's doing something, which is obviously a rather blatant form of hypocrisy. Uh, does he realistically, as an American political leader, have any alternative? Uh, I mean, I mean, the, the, the difficulty for him, to further add to my half-hearted defense, uh, is that the American people simultaneously want him to do something, because we don't want to stand by idly while terrible things happen, um, and yet all the specific things that he might do are things that, issue by issue, the American people really don't want him to do. So he's, he's kind of stuck. I mean, I, so, so I, do I feel good about what he's doing? No, I don't. Do I, do I feel that I know realistically what his alternatives are? I don't know that either. And, and, you know, one other <laughs> irony to note here, actually, um, uh, I don't know, I'm sure the two of you have at some point or another uh, read Samantha Power's fantastic book from about a decade ago, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide, Samantha Power, of course, being the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And I think what was so powerful about her book, which, which looked at U.S. response to genocide, was that, in, that she said, look, I started researching this book with a question in mind. You know, how could it be that when we keep saying never again and we so clearly want to stop atrocities, that yet we somehow never end up stopping atrocities, see Rwanda, see Bosnia, see now Syria. And, and at the end of the book, she concludes, I was wrong. We don't want to stop atrocities. It's not that the system doesn't work because we want to stop atrocities and yet somehow we fail. It's that the entire system is essentially, or the entire U.S. executive branch, national security, foreign policy, decision-making apparatus is specifically designed to prevent us from actually having to do anything, and it works really well. And that was a very cynical conclusion, a very depressing conclusion in many ways, but I think, sadly and ironically, we are seeing the truth of that assessment in the U.S.'s reaction to Syria, which she is now obviously a, a vital part of. Well, look, that's true, and I think it's a tragic irony of this administration that it's filled not only with people like Samantha Power, who literally wrote the definitive book on this kind of failure, but also people like uh, Susan Rice and others who were there through Rwanda, which is what Samantha Power was writing about, and so have seen this movie before. But there's a difference between Rwanda and Nigeria and Syria, and it's an important difference. And that is that we can't simply shrug off what's going on in Syria and saying it's far away and it has no impact on us. Because indeed, the flow of refugees from Syria into Europe is creating both a political problem that conceivably, as it stimulates the anger of the far right, can weaken 
the resolve of the EU to continue with coalescing and becoming a stronger ally to us, which strengthens the interests of the Russians who don't particularly want a strong EU. The flow of those refugees also leads to social division in our countries, economic burdens for those countries, and to some limited degree, a security risk. Furthermore, the decay of Syria creates an opportunity for extremist groups to slip into the cracks and the places that are failed states within the state, get stronger, get wealth, impose their will, and use that as a staging area or a retreat area or part of their general plan for extending their influence throughout the region, as they have done uh, in the case of ISIS by working across the border in both Syria and Iraq. And then, of course, you have the issue of groups like ISIS, which have a stated desire to project their particular form of terror out into the Western world, including the United States. So this is not an abstract issue. It also poses a real threat to real U.S. allies. And it's different in that respect from Rwanda. Now, I personally come from the school of thought that says we're a global community. We have the same responsibilities in the global community that we have in a local community. And if there were a fire in a house in our local community, everybody in town would have the responsibility to go and do what was necessary to put that out or fight a crime wave or fight injustice in that community because we have common interests. And I think that extends to the global scene. And I think that the lesson of the 20th century's genocides should be global action to prevent genocide and that the most powerful and richest country in the world has a special obligation to lead that. But setting it aside, in the case of Syria, there is a very... A lot to set aside, David. Well, well yeah, it is a lot to set aside. But, but <laughs> in the case of Syria, it's a special yeah. case. And so you can't simply shrug it off. Right, Corey? Yeah. I, I agree. I, it has lots of second and third order effects. And the Obama administration, to its credit, has been extraordinarily worried and cautious about the effects of doing something everywhere in the world. But they have been inadequately judicious in assessing the consequences of doing nothing. Well, they they have, you know, rolled out every one of the kind of lame defenses that Rosa has articulated better than they have. It's not my job. We don't have a national interest here. Nobody else has a better solution for this. You know, if those were the responses of somebody who worked in a company, they'd get canned. You know, this is it's just not appropriate. You have to actually come up with the best possible answer. And in the case of Syria, we're coming up with, you know, essentially a plan to create the appearance of trying to deal with it as opposed to actually doing anything material to deal with it. And that the lameness of that approach is now manifesting itself in talks that Kerry has participated in because he's got no leverage. So, David, let me come back to you, though, and push you on that. And it's not fair to just say, well, it's not my job. It's, it's the White House's job. What should we do? We all sort of say, oh, my goodness, this is a terrible problem. Something must be done. And I accept your description of Syria as being different in terms of U.S. interests 
than some of the other horrific tragedies occurring and crimes and tragedies occurring in the world today. But the fact that something should be done doesn't necessarily mean that there's something that can be done. It can be done both in the sense of that we know it can be done or can be done in terms of our, our actual power to make things better rather than merely some variation of horrific or, or even worse. For you and Corey, what do you think that there is a clear something that well, we first should of all, be doing? First of all, the way you that phrased that was very Obama-esque, saying, you know, is there a clear... <laughs> uh, I'm trying. I am trying so well, hard to Well, I know, but you're saying, here. was there a clear something? You know, they always say, well, is there a clear path forward? Is there something? Well, there's no clear path. There are, there are a bunch of options, and none of the options are great options, but there are options that represent better action than the inaction that we're currently taking. Okay. And the problem, well, I'll get there, but the problem with laying out all of those options is that a number of them are things we should have done before, so it then looks like it's Monday morning quarterbacking. But, of course, the Obama administration's been there for a while, and when David Petraeus and Hillary Clinton and Leon Panetta were saying, look, there are things that we could do here. There are things we ought to consider here. Or later on, when the military was saying we need this much support, not a lesser amount of support, the administration could have listened. Could we have been having the humanitarian corridor conversation that John Kerry is having now four years ago? So, or, totally so, agree, but here we are now. But, what do we but, do now? Well, well, except that's that's just not a fair question. They've been in power throughout this whole period of time. Yes, but, you know, but, and, but, and, well, but, no, but everybody me... in the entire line of succession dies, and you, David Rothkopf, suddenly become unexpectedly the president of the United States. What are you going to do? Well, right now, I think, you know, you're going to go in, you're going to try to establish humanitarian corridor, you're going to try to identify areas where Syrians can stay in Syria and feel a degree secure. Are you going to consider things like no-fly zones, even though they're very hard to enforce? Yes. Are you going to go out and talk to your allies and say, look, this is a priority for us, we're going to put our troops into this situation and you're going to put your troops into this situation next to ours? Yes. Does that mean we have to put in tens of thousands of troops there? No. But our decision not to really put any of our folks on the line there has enabled everybody else to say they're not going to put our, their folks on the line there. Countries like Turkey are members of NATO and yet have not behaved like members of NATO. Would I use more pressure? Would I threaten them with their future participation in NATO for not taking kind of actions that are supportive of us? Yes, I would. Would I go to countries like Saudi Arabia or other Gulf countries and say, well, I understand you've got a problem in Yemen, but we need your attention here first and we need not just token bombing missions? Yes, I would. Would I not be pretending that we are doing something by dropping a sort of a limited uh, amount of ordinance on this situation and saying, well, we're, you know, sort of we've got them on the run and trying to cook up our victories and minimize our defeats? Yes, I would. Would I be working with the Russians and the Iranians and the Saudis and others to come up with a succession plan sooner rather than later in Damascus to get the government that we know we're going to end up with, which is essentially a kind of an Alawite uh, successor regime, and that would then give us a foothold in the fight against ISIS? Yes, I would. Would I provide more support to the Jordanians to secure their border and more support and more pressure on Iraq in order to squeeze from both ends of this thing? Yes, I would. You know, I think all of those things are things that we might reasonably consider doing. Um, and I think mm -hmm. none of those things are things that we're doing. But, you know, Corey, maybe you have a different idea. So, so first of 
of all, I'm secretly hoping that the chain of secession ends up with David as president, because that's a fine You approach. never know. <laughs> actually, actually, you do know. <laughs> but I have two other suggested models. First, let me say, though, I agree with David that it's unfair for the administration to say, wow, you know, there's nothing that can be done now as though they have no responsibility for getting us to where we are now. That is, their inaction has made progressively narrower the range of choice for how to deal with this, and they bear culpability for that. That said, I still think there are two reasonable models for approaching this. And the first is the Balkans, and the second is the Operation Provide Comfort in the Kurdish areas of northern Iraq after the 91 Gulf War. And they, the reason they're different models is because in the first instance, you would maybe we can call it the Biden plan, since this is what he recommended for Iraq, which is that you accept the cantonment of the country into sectarian, that is, you allow enough horror to occur that a partition is possible. There would be an Alawite area where you could say, we don't care who runs the Alawite area. If you want Bashar Assad in power there, that's an Alawite decision. But any so-called Syrian military forces that operate out of that area are going to come under attack. And then you permit Sunni to run some areas of the country, and you create enclaves for others who refuse to live under Sunni rule, or more than one Sunni area if they have differences. And we essentially police the external boundaries of those cantonments. We let so much ethnic cleansing go on in the Balkans in the early 1990s that that became a manageable solution better than just permitting the civil war to continue. And I actually, bad a solution as it is, I think it is better than where we are headed in Syria now. And the second alternative is the one we took to protect the Kurdish areas in northern Iraq after the 91 Gulf War, where you have a humanitarian mission, which is the protection, feeding, and caring for a population along the Turkish, Jordanian, and Jordanian borders of Syria so that you can move Syrian refugees out of those two countries, which are currently tottering under the weight of it, um, and create disincentives for Syrians to, to become refugees outside their own countries. You commit to doing it over the long term, so you don't care what happens in Syria outside of those areas, but you are going to protect those areas and permit civic society and politics to occur in those areas. I would just remind you that these days everyone is, is positive about all the Kurds have achieved compared to other sectarian communities in Iraq. That would by no means have been a conclusion in 1991. We created the safe space so that ordinary politics could produce the Kurdish territories of today, and the same thing is possible to achieve in Syria. Now, let me add one thing to this, because I, I think everything, you know, what you said makes some sense. The things that I said may also make some sense to consider. But the other thing that I want to emphasize is 
This all has to be conducted in the context of a region-wide strategy, Excellent. and that also does not right. exist. And and so, you know, one of the problems is the problem is not ISIS. The problem is extremism. And what are we doing to address that, which involves everything from creating jobs for young men to finding moderate allies that work uh, to create an alternative narrative, which we have not successfully done. Uh, it involves putting pressure on those moderate allies to uh, produce the kinds of reforms that create the kind of hope that countervail against the message of the extremists. It involves building strong strategic alliances within the region, both in terms of strengthening regional actors so that they can take responsibility for actions that take place within the region, and building foundations for our future um, uh, relationships there. And one of the things that Corey was talking about is one of those foundations and it's extremely uh, controversial in one respect and completely commonsensical in another. And that is Kurdistan should be an independent country. We should be laying the foundation for it. It should be on an unmistakable track there because one thing that we know, thanks to the evolution that's taken place there, is that the Kurds have been among our most effective allies there and that if you could strengthen Kurdistan, you could strengthen Jordan, you maintain the relationship that you've got with Israel, then you've got essentially an axis in the middle of the region that allows you to ensure stability. And between that and working more closely with our Gulf partners, partners, you know, we get stronger still. And then, of course, I think, you know, you get to perhaps the thorniest problem there, with is Egypt, where Egypt is the tentpole for the region. It is the intellectual light for the region. And the government in Egypt has been drifting in a direction of uh, repression that has gone from being disturbing to being appalling. And the United States needs to stand up against that. And if it doesn't, we are going to face a bigger problem, which I think we will face later this year, and that has to do with the continuing decline in Libya, because Libya is not only a failing state where everything that we've done and others have done has not panned out very well, but it becomes a staging ground for extremist groups that you know, want to take their message into Egypt, just as Sinai has become. And if there were ever a moment where the extremists really took to destabilization of parts of Egypt, that would be catastrophic for us. And so we've got to look at this entire region in a way that we haven't, be strategic, be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, have people empowered to implement our policies in the region in a way that they haven't been, where it's all been controlled, micromanaged through the White House, or we are going to continue to have these problems indefinitely. And that's why I think that ultimately the next administration is going to have to conclude with that. We only have a couple minutes left, and I don't think it would be fair after I've filibustered here and, wrote, and Corey has filibustered not to return to the spokesperson for the White House, Rosa <laughs> Right. You win. I give up. <laughs> no, so, okay, uh, you, you forced me to abandon my my even my half-hearted defense. And I think you're right. You've both laid out all sorts of ideas that we should be taking more seriously and this administration should be actively investigating. But let me, let me throw out one last question. Uh, what's Vladimir Putin doing while we do all of these things? When, when, when President Obama says, uh, you know, having listened to Foreign Policy's podcast, I now see that my assessment was wrong. It was, it was overly limited, and there are, there's a large number of things that I ought to be doing right this second, and Corey and David are right, and I have ordered my staff to get moving. What, what's Putin's response? Excellent question, 
and the subject for our next podcast. Thank you, Corey, and thank you, Rosa, for a great discussion. <laughs> and please join us again next week where we revisit uh, the issue of how Vladimir Putin is schooling Barack Obama. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.